Thank you so very much on this joyful, joyful Resurrection Sunday. So wonderful to be able to gather with you. For those that are tuning in now online, I hope you sense the warmth that's found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. For those that might be watching somewhere else in the building, likewise. I'd love for you now to take your Bibles with me this morning on this Resurrection Sunday and join me in tuning to John chapter 20. And in John chapter 20, I'm going to be exploring today with you verse 1 down through verse 18 together, seeking to gain a better understanding of what it is that God wants to say to us through his word. This is an extraordinary account of the story of the empty tomb. It's quiet our hearts as we explore it together. In verse 1, we're told, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Reached the tomb first, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw And believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, well, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and, and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So we're going to now quiet our hearts. And we're going to look to our Lord in prayer. And our Father, we're thanking you now for being our God, our sovereign God.
the one who sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. There is lordship over this day and over each and every day of this week. The Mondays that have us moving back into the ordinaries of life. The Tuesday with elections. And onward through the course of these days. And what we need, Father, is to maintain an upward gaze and focus upon the one who matters most, Jesus Christ. Some here, Father, today are going to be coming spiritually curious. Some are going to be tuning in online right now and perhaps are finding themselves disillusioned by life. There are going to be those that have a religious background, but all of this seems so confusing. What does this event in time have to do with the way you live life today? We've got some questions that we're going to have to try to answer in these moments together. So, Father, we're thankful now that we can take the eternal, bring it into the temporal, Take the story of the risen Savior and apply it to the everyday stuff of life. These moments to come are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here physically present or else live stream. We've come here. See Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. You and I are making our way down the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem. You've joined me, and together now what we're doing is we're, we're thinking carefully as we move from one station to another. We get to the last four, perhaps five stations on the Via Della Rosa. And now we have reached the point where we are what is known at, as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's a story behind this. For you see, there was a woman named Helena. She was the mother of the Emperor Constantine. So gripped by the story of Jesus Christ, the events surrounding death, resurrection. She, with her entourage, made their way into Israel, Jerusalem in particular, and wanted all the debris to be removed and monuments established to give evidence to the fact that there is a testimony pertaining to who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us. Out of that, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And when you and I, in the midst of our final stations along the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem, make our way inwards, what we will find is that we are introduced then to what they would view as the tomb, the tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, there have been some disputations regarding where the location of the tomb is. General Gordon had his, known as Gordon's tomb. And here, Helena, with her work, they would have established this is to be the place and we make our way now into this particular station. The Via Della Rosa is divided into many stations. It takes your breath away. As you pause and you consider the significance of the setting and all that this represented in God's redemptive plan, which had you in mind. What this does, then, is it takes the spiritually curious person. It addresses the needs of the disillusioned person. Speaks to the heart of the one who is intellectually hungry for truth and looking for answers regarding the things that matter most in life. If that describes you in one of those categories, John 20 has, it goes a long way to addressing the issues of the hour in your mind, in your heart, in your soul. I want you to join me now, and we're going to make our way into chapter 20. We're going to have our own Via Della Rosa experience. 
And we're going to position ourselves now, if you will, at our, at, our, at our church of the Holy Sepulchre. And we're going to explore together what God has done for you and done for me. Because here we would find a woman who seems to be utterly disillusioned, broken-hearted, hopeless. And what you and I find now this morning, if you are desperate in need for real hope, You've come to a chapter in the Bible that addresses you to your very point of need. What I want to do with you now this morning is to draw out two major distinctives about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings authentic hope to life. And the first comes out of verse 1 down to verse 10. That when all hope in life seems to have vanished, and maybe where that's where you are at in some way, shape, or form. I want you to come with me now. We're going to ponder the empty tomb together and consider, first of all, the material evidence that renews our faith. And so now we pick it up in verse 1. And there you have it. There's Mary Magdalene. And she must be thinking about the way in which Jesus Christ has so impacted her life. In Luke chapter 8, what you would find is that Jesus had, had removed seven demons from her. She felt freedom. He would have such a powerful influence upon her life. She would also now, in this opening verse, find herself at this tomb pondering, processing all the environmental factors that came into play, where not once... But twice, two earthquakes took place in these prior hours. One, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The other, as we would examine carefully, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She would be thinking about the darkness of the skies, where as Jesus Christ hung on that cross, he would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which would mean, my God, my God. And notice now the personal dynamic relationship that God the Father has with God the Son. Why have you forsaken me? And just then, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not bottom to top. Why? It's all about what God has done for us, not what we do to God and for God. You see. It's not about our works. It's about God's grace. It's as if God is now making a symbolic statement to you and me with the tearing of that, of that curtain from top to bottom. You now have access. And where it once seemed as though life was so hopeless... What I do through the resurrected one is to bring you authentic hope. We're told in Matthew's account, the earth shook, the rocks were split. The very moment, tombs opened. Now, this would have had a rattling effect uh, across the entire region. What are they thinking? You're listening into the conversations as a Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, followers of Jesus Christ, members of the Sanhedrin, go out of their way to find a proper burial place and offer proper burial to Jesus' body. Meanwhile, in Matthew's account, in, in chapter 27 of verse 61, we're told Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Eyewitnesses, you see. Well, now, well, we've got to bear in mind at this point, and Mary is probably just taking all this in, trying to figure things out, and maybe that's where you're at this morning as well, trying to figure out life. Well, those that were feeling threatened by Jesus Christ's claims, it was not so much the secularists as it was the religionists, the religious unbelievers. They were so fearful that Jesus' disciples were going to remove the tomb, the body from the tomb, and then make a claim that he had been raised from the grave, and then tell the people, 
in such a way that, in their estimation, the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate listens in. He says to them, you have a God, a God of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And what secular unbelievers and religious unbelievers seem to try to do in common with one another is to make that tomb as secure as they can until somebody comes along and removes this, this stone, you see, and challenges you to look in. And you look in, and all of a sudden, all the hopelessness of life dissipates. An authentic, real, dynamic hope seizes your heart. Mary, what are you feeling? Mary, you're living as though you're Saturday's child. This is the first day of the week. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Don't you realize, Mary, that you are family of the first day? As you are, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what stands behind all of this. She's hurting. Milton put it this way, in Paradise Lost, the mind is its own place, and in itself can make a, a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. And she's grappling with all of this, and it's still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is an extraordinary thing. The stone was, well, it was common for a stone at that point in time to weigh as much as a ton, large, circular in shape, set up on an edge, positioned in an inclined groove in front of the tomb's entrance. And after the body was placed in the cave for burial, the stone would then be released from the high end of the groove by the removal of a wedge or stone, and once free to move, gravity took over and pulled it into its place. Now, the guards don't have vested interest in trying to move the stone. There's an official seal wrapped around that stone, you see. And that seal consisted of a cord or, or a string positioned across the stone at its widest point, fastened at either end by the ceiling of clay. And if you moved the stone ever so slightly, breaking the seal, you would be put to death. The guards have vested interest in keeping that body in the grave. The disciples, they're shuddering in fear. They're in the upper room. They don't want to venture out. It's only between God the Father and God the Son at this point. And that's all we need. Now, that stone is not moved so that Jesus can get out. Nope. That stone is moved so that Jesus' disciples can look in. And now what they are being given at this moment is material evidence that Jesus' claims regarding death, resurrection are invalidated, materially speaking. And so now you're looking at this and you're pondering this at this point. She saw that the tomb, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She needs, she needs some perspective. What she's longing for is authentic Hope. Herman, piano teacher, university, simply known as Herman. But one night at a university concert, there was this distinguished piano player who suddenly became ill while performing this extraordinarily difficult piece, you see. No sooner had the artist retired from the stage, the biographer tells us, when Herman rose from his seat in the audience walked on stage, sat down at the piano, and with great mastery completed the performance. 
Later that evening, at a social gathering, one of the students came up to their professor and asked him how he was able to perform such a demanding piece so beautifully without notice, no rehearsal. His response, it was 1939. I was a budding young concert pianist in Germany. I was arrested, placed in a Nazi concentration camp, and putting it mildly, everything seemed futile. The future looked bleak. But I knew that in order to keep the flicker of hope alive, that I might someday play again, I needed to practice every day. So I began by fingering a piece from my repertoire on my bare board bed late one night. The next night, I added a second piece, and soon I was running through my entire repertoire, and I did this every night for five years. I was trying to bring hope to my hopeless condition. And it just so happens that the piece I played tonight at the concert hall was part of that repertoire. The constant practice is what kept hope alive. Every day I renewed my hope that I would one day be able to play my music again on a real piano with real hope and with real freedom. Bring hope into whatever hopeless condition you find yourself grappling with at this particular moment in your life experience. Mary runs. There's a lot of running in this chapter. She ran. She ran, went to Simon Peter. And the other disciple, John's humble at this point. He's not pointing out it's him. He just refers to himself as the other disciple. But then he adds this caveat, the one whom Jesus loved. We know who that is. It's the Apostle John. But I want you to see here now, and this is typical of people that are grappling with a sense of hopelessness in their condition. They are dealing with presuppositions. They're dealing with assumptions about reality. She's got her own virtual reality. She says they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. She says we... There have been other ladies present as well at that tomb. So now, this has, got, this has got the hearts stirred up at this moment. And so, of course, it's going to be Peter and John. And the two of them now get involved in a bit of a track meet. And so in verse 3, Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together. John wants you to know at this point that he's a long-distance runner par excellence. Uh, the other disciple outran Peter. Reached the tomb first, you see. Now, what you're going to want to spot on the screen as we continue verse by verse in this exposition is that not once, not twice, three times the word saw is used, S-A-W, to describe their visual engagement with the empty tomb. But what's interesting is that in the original language, the Greek, each Greek word used for saw is a different word. Let me draw it out for us. Now, notice here that we are told both of them are running together. The other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first, stooping to look in. He marked this now. He's the first of the three. Saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. The Greek word here for saw is blepo. Carries with the idea to glance. Let's say somebody is watching a, a particular program on TV. It's not doesn't interest you. You walk through the living room, wherever. You look, you glance. But you're not engaged. 
Now, at this moment, I would say that what the Apostle John is doing is that this is, is so taking him aback. He stands there. He doesn't enter. He glances. But this is about as far as it goes at first. And for some, on this Resurrection Sunday throughout the culture, this is about as far as it goes for them. They, uh, they have this glance when it comes to the whole matter of the risen Savior. But Jesus deserves so much more than a glance, you see. Is that where you're at? A glance today and then back at it to normal tomorrow? But now, Simon Peter, he, he's a little slow on the draw, you see, in his track uh, skills. He, he came following him, went into the tomb. Now, that's so typical of Peter, by the way, isn't it? John stands at the door. He glances. Peter now enters the tomb. But I want you to see is the second of the three saws now appears before your eyes. We've got it italicized on the screen. He saw the linen cloths lying there. What fascinates me at this point is that the word saw that appears there is not blepo, but theoreo, from which we get the word to theorize, from which we get the word theater. Now let's say you've gone to the theater and you've got some tremendous acting taking place and you're trying to follow the dramas that's unfolding. So you've got a theory as to what's taking place and where all this is headed. At this point then, Peter has gone further than John. He is theorizing. And furthermore, he is now having to process what I will call the drama of redemption. And for some, maybe you're watching right now on live stream. And you've got your theories with regard to who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done. I want you to take the material evidence here and move beyond the glance. Work through the theories, but stay in the text because it's going to take you somewhere. It's going to take you to Jesus. And so now, he saw the linen cloths lying there, didn't he? And that's a very powerful thing in itself because Peter and John were privy to what they had encountered with the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And they had to think very carefully about that whole matter as well. And so the tomb's empty. The grave cloths closed or left. And when Peter and John look into the tomb, they find it vacant. Their attention's held captive by this empty mummy wrap, the headpiece set off by itself. What I want you to spot here at this time is that here at this moment, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and in verse 7, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. In other words, in typical Jewish burial customs, there was the wrapping of the head, and then there was the wrapping of the body, but they would be separate from and the spices, for the sake of burial purposes, would be laid upon both. But now the clothing is such that everything is still in place. Everything is still intact, as if nobody was rushed or hurried to get up, but the body's gone. Yet the clothing is all in proper order. In verse 8, the other disciple who reached the tomb first, he wants you to remember that now. He got there first, you see. He went in, but here's your third saw. He saw and believed. But you see, this saw is different than the first two. The first one was blepo, that carries with the idea of a glance. The second saw was theoreo, which carries the idea to theorize. We get the word theater from. But this third word in the Greek is a ra'o, from which we get the whole idea 
of to be able to see with understanding. He gets it. And what we want for one and all to be able to do this morning is to say, I get it. That the Greek word day, used in Mark 8, again in chapter 9, and again in chapter 10, three times, the word means literally must. I must, Jesus Christ, say, go through all this, and on the third day be raised. It's a must. Now, had he not been raised from the grave, then all his claims would have been invalidated at that point. He would remain in his grave, and then Christianity would be no different than Islam, with Muhammad in his grave, Hinduism, and on and on. But what distinguishes Christianity from all other faiths, there's a vacancy sign over this grave. You've walked your Via Dolorosa, you see. You've entered into the final stations. And now you've moved from Blepo through Theoreo on into Arao, and we desperately need Sherlock Holmes to help us here. Because Watson says, when I hear you give reason." Watson remarked to Holmes. The thing that always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself, though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours, Holmes. Quite so, Sherlock Holmes answered. But Watson, you see, but you do not observe. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For, for example, you have frequently seen the steps that lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently. But how often, Watson? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed. Yet you have seen. That's my point. Now I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. The challenge is, is that we have a lot of people that are very visual in their orientation. They see. But it's what I will call an external sense of sight. They have sight without insight. But the first day family has sight, but also has insight and now connects the dots and says to the people who are hurting in this culture, there's hope, and the hope is based upon the fact that the tomb is empty. Job, he's hurting. Is there any hope? He's experienced extraordinary loss in his life. Yet, what he is able to say in response to the challenges that a man by the name of Bildad is posing, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Hope for the hurting. Hope is tied to faith. And the person who has put faith and trust, not in their works, but in the one who, because of his finished work, is identified with the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, reinstills hope into our hearts. You're in verse 8. He saw. Get this. 
Yeah. He believed. And now here's your first resurrection belief statement. Post-resurrection. He saw. Arao believed. But then the caveat in verse 9, isn't it? For as yet they did not understand the scripture. And it's very possible this morning that you say, you know, this is a pretty big book and the scriptures are hard to, hard to understand. Well, you're in good company because at this point, even the beloved John himself didn't get it initially. But in Psalm 16, in verses 9 and 10, the psalmist stated, Therefore my, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is a messianic psalm uh, promising Jesus 1,000 years prior. Well, now, what do you do with that? Then the disciples went back to their homes. Sherlock Holmes would be proud. I think of Moscow's Red Square. Is it straight father? The orthodox priest shifting the heavy eight-foot crucifix on his shoulder. Yes, it's straight. So together, the two priests, along with a group of parishioners holding the ropes that steadied the beams of the huge cross, walked the parade route. Before them, they had passed the official might of the Soviet Union, Republic as usual, it's May Day processions of tanks and missiles, troops, salutes to the Communist Party elite. You can picture now the era that I'm reading from. Behind the tanks surged a giant crowd of protesters shouting out at Mikhail Gorbachev, bread, freedom, truth. Well, as the throng passed directly in front of the Soviet leader standing in his place of honor, the priests hoisted their heavy burden toward the sky, and the cross emerged from the crowd. And as it did, the figure of Jesus Christ obscured the giant poster faces of Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Vladimir Lenin, that provided the backdrop for Gorbachev's reviewing stand. Mikhail Sergeyevich, one of the priests, shouted, his deep voice cleaving the clamor of the protesters, piercing straight toward the Soviet leader. Mikhail Zagaryev, Christ is risen. And we know the rest of the story, that in a matter of months after that final May Day celebration, the Soviet Union was officially dissolved. We know that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Jesus is busy, risen, building his church. And so now, there you have, there you have the material evidence. It renews our faith. It gives you hope for tomorrow, the Mondays of your life. But something more. Because in verses 11 through 18, and watch the second of all, see with me the transformational encounters that refresh our faith. You've got the three saws in the background of your mind as you've thought through the material evidence. But what do you do with the weeping Marys of this world who've been given now evidence that, that the stone's been removed, but the sorrow remains? as if she's still Saturday's child. Not family of the first day, but you are, Mary, even in your tears. And maybe this morning, you're looking at all the tears of the prior nights. You're trying to live like Saturday's child when you're part of the family of first day. Bring your Saturday into your Sunday. Because now here in verse 11, Mary, 
Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and as she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, and notice how God in his sovereignty positions now these angels. One at the head, one at the feet, and now you're you're forced to look at the material evidence and begin to deal with the transformational effect. And they said to her, Women, why are you weeping? Form of a question. And now she responds at this point because somebody who's emotionally challenged by the hopelessness of life has got to be able to give some sense of their assumptions some sense of their presuppositions as to why they're living like it's still Saturday when in reality it's Sunday. Here's her assumption. Here's her presupposition. They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And there's Jesus. And isn't this like Jesus, you see? His quiet, strong, powerful dignity. Majestic in his ways. So personal. In verse 15, Jesus is now going to draw out the emotions. As should you. As should I when we're dealing with the sense of hopelessness of life and instill authentic hope into that heart. And he does it in verse 15 in the form of a question. Woman, why are you weeping? She's going to have to deal with the whys of life. Another Mary in another time early on in Jesus referred to his own mother as woman in John 2. And now John brilliantly pulls together the woman principles of beginning and end of his gospel. Woman, why are you weeping in the form of a question? But now, and I want you to notice the strategic wording that's found here. Whom are you seeking? He doesn't ask, what are you seeking? The natural tendency would be to say that she's seeking the, the body. But you see, he's not going to deal with the what, he's going to deal with the whom. And here's part of the challenge of life. Saturday's children are caught up with the what's of life. But the first day family knows the issue is not the what, the issue ultimately is the who. And she's got the who right before her very presence. And now he's posing questions to draw out her emotions until she's confronted with the reality of real hope. Whom are you seeking? What you need to do in your everyday trafficking with people, secular or religious, that are caught up in the what is to guide them from the what to the who. Whom are you seeking? Now, once again, another assumption, which is very typical of despairing people. Supposing him to be the gardener. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea's gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Oh, Mary, come on, you're not that big. Here's Jesus. Isn't this like Jesus? He waited until he drew out Mary. She laid out her presuppositions and assumptions. She laid out the question of the what, and he brings it to the whom. Now he gets personal, which is what he does for you. And this morning, if you are needing hope in the midst of your hopelessness, He's got your name. Because succinctly, lovingly, powerfully, Jesus said to her, Mary, 
she turns. Says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's a teaching moment. And whenever you are confronting the hopelessness of life with the hope of Jesus Christ, there's a teaching moment on your hand, in your hands. Here's what he has to say. Do not cling to me. In other words, don't cling to merely this earthly ministry. There's going to be a heavenly intercessory ministry. There's more coming. Don't cling to this stuff. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Poignant. Go to my brothers. He calls them my brothers. My brothers. The ones that had, pro had produced social distancing at the cross and everybody fled. They're still his brothers. And if you've distanced yourself today from Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. But somewhere along the way, you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're part of the family of the first day. Don't live like it's Saturday. It's Sunday, seven days a week. And for the one that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're grappling with this whole issue, why do I feel so hopeless and so helpless in this world that I find myself in? Everything seems so chaotic. Go to the tomb, where now the combination of material evidence as well as the extraordinary transformational encounters of life itself have a way of impacting us. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. My God, your God. But notice the distinctions. He does not say, I am ascending to our Father. No. He distinguishes himself from the others because he's sinless, they're sinful. He is the Son of God. I am ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God, and to your God. And now you're looking at this. You're processing this. And you're asking now, how do I deal with all the issues that I'm confronted with day in, day out? If, in fact, Sunday is seven days a week, some questions to be posed that we pose each, each Easter if Jesus remained dead, how does one explain the testimony of the disciples? For you see, if he had lived in the first century, if you had lived in the first century and had taken time to look, you would have seen the fear combined with the tear in the eyes of the disciples at the crucifixion. They fled. How do you explain their testimony? Second, if Jesus remained dead, how can you explain the faithfulness of the disciples to the testimony of the resurrection, even in the face of their own deaths? They had run to that sheltered room and hid from the Jewish authorities, but they would hit the streets proclaiming the gospel in the book of Acts. How do you explain such transformational encounters unless Jesus is risen? Third, if Jesus remained dead, why did 500 people say they saw him alive? Check out 1 Corinthians 15, 6 sometime. Fourth, if Jesus remained dead, how can you explain the credibility of the witnesses? And fifth, and this is always one that captures my attention. If Jesus remained dead, how can you explain the inability of the first century skeptics, religious or secular, to deal with the resurrection with an alternative explanation. All they needed to do is to produce the body. All they needed to do is to produce the body. They didn't because they couldn't. And hope breaks in. And Johnny Erickson has a lot of hope. She writes, the problem with being in a wheelchair is that at a certain point in my church's liturgy every Sunday, 
priest called everyone to kneel, which drove home the fact that in a wheelchair, I was not able to get down on my knees and pray. With everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out. I couldn't stop crying. Oh, the tears. But it was not because of self-pity. I was crying because the sight of all these people on their knees before God. It was a picture of heaven. It's the story of the redeemed on their knees. And she continued weeping as she then shared these thoughts. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven I'll be free to jump, dance, kick, do aerobics. Sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, first thing I plan to do on first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. And I will quietly kneel at the feet of my Jesus. Mary, there's a time to kneel. There's a time to kick up your heel. It's time to go run and tell others about Jesus. And so in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. As he had said these things to her, where the visual and the verbal come together. So there we have. You're a little tired after this trek along the Via Dolorosa with all the crowds. But we're there. We're pondering the empty grave. There's a vacancy sign. But you're not meant to stay there. You've got to step out. You go back out. You need to make multiply. You need to multiply disciples for Jesus Christ. So look at the exterior of that building one last time. Make your way out among your friends. What does this have to do for you and me? Not only is there a resurrection of Jesus, but for some, we're along the way. All those who are family of the first day who experience their future resurrection as well. Dimitri. Dimitri was a Russian sailor whose last scribbled note was found on his body in the wreck of the Kursk nuclear submarine. He had a premonition of death before he left home for the last time, his wife Olga said. Olga and Dimitri had been married only a few months. When two, the, when two unexplained explosions ripped through the Kirsk on that August 12th of 2000, and the submarine sank to the bottom of the sea, causing the deaths of 118 sailors. Dimitri's mother said this, I still believe even now, I still believe even now, they should have raised the boat, raised the boat itself together with the whole crew, it would have been much easier for everyone. Dimitri's wife agreed. We already said the crew should be raised. Raise them together. They live together. They serve together. They need to be raised together. And so it is with Jesus and the family of the first day. As the worship leaders come, Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, we're praising you. We're thanking you. We don't have to make Saturday seven days a week. If we know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, if we put faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, we're part of the first day family. If there are any of those in the prior service, this present service, those viewing online or in the days to come, who find themselves hopeless but now have been confronted with real hope, my prayer now is that they would put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, the one who died for their sins 
on the third day raised from the grave and find that living hope, real hope, eternal hope is in Christ alone. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed the victory is won he is risen from the dead i will rise as he calls my name no more sorrow no more I will rise on eagle's wings before my God, fall on my knees and rise. I will rise. There's a day that's drawing. darkness brings to light and the shadows disappear and my faith shall be my eyes Jesus has overcome and the grave is
resurrection. God, we worship you and praise you. We want to be people of the first day, family of the first day, God. Help us to go in peace this morning with that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.